You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collected work by Rudolf Steiner, number 107, entitled Disease, Karma, and Healing, Spiritual Scientific Inquiries into the Nature of the Human Being. This is Lecture 17, given in Berlin on the 27th of April, 1909. This winter we embarked on a whole series of spiritual scientific reflections, all informed by the specific aim of gaining an ever more intimate understanding of the whole nature of the human being. We studied the great riddle of humankind from many different angles. Today's deliberations will focus on something very mundane, but perhaps precisely through engaging with mundane things, we may discover how we can encounter the riddles of life at every turn and how they can lead us into the world's depths if we grasp them fully and learn to master and handle them. You see, the loftiest spirit should not be sought in some unknown, far-off realm, for it manifests in the most everyday realities. We can seek the greatest in the least, the world in a grain of sand, if we know how to do so. In this cycle of winter lectures, therefore, I would like to incorporate a reflection on the ordinary, everyday theme of laughing, and weeping, as seen from a spiritual scientific perspective. Laughing and weeping are certainly very mundane aspects of human life. However, only spiritual science can give us insight into them, because it reveals the deepest core of human nature, which clearly distinguishes us from the other natural kingdoms on this globe. We stand head and shoulders above our fellow creatures on earth precisely because of all of them we have attained to the greatest degree of godliness participating most intensely in the divine. For this reason only knowledge and insight that raise themselves to the spirit can really fathom human nature. It is important to focus properly on laughing and weeping for a moment for they alone can dispel the prejudice that tries to relate our nature far too closely to that of animals. There are schools of thought, of course, that accentuate our resemblance to animals. The high intelligence demonstrated in much animal behavior, which can sometimes be more reliable than human reason. The spiritual scientist is not greatly surprised at this, for he knows that when an animal engages in intelligent activity, this does not derive from the animal as an individual, but from the group soul. It is, of course, very difficult to explain the term group soul in a way that renders it comprehensible or convincing to external observation, although this is by no means impossible. But we can bear in mind one thing in particular, which, if our observations are wide-ranging enough, can be externally verified. Animals neither laugh nor cry. 
No doubt some people will claim that animals do cry and laugh, but this is to ignore the real nature of laughing and crying, for only by doing so can we ascribe it to animals. Anyone who practices true soul observation will know that the animal can howl at most but not cry, and only grin at most but not laugh. We need to be aware of this distinction between howling and crying and between grinning and laughing. In fact, to cast light on the real nature of laughing and crying, we have to look back in time to very important events. You will recall from lectures I have given in various places, in Berlin too, especially the lecture on the temperaments, that two streams need to be distinguished in human life. One comprises all human qualities and characteristics that we receive through inheritance from our parents and ancestors and can in turn be passed on genetically to our offspring. The other consists of qualities and characteristics we have by virtue, by virtue of being born with an individuality. The individuality wraps itself in inherited characteristics only as though in a kind of shawl, whereas its intrinsic characteristics and qualities come from former lives on earth, from previous incarnations. Basically, therefore, we are twofold in nature, inheriting one aspect of ourselves from our forefathers, while we bring the other with us from our past incarnations. Thus we distinguish the true core of our being that passes from one lifetime to another, from incarnation to incarnation, as opposed to all that clothes us, accruing around our intrinsic core of being and consisting of inherited characteristics. Before we are born, our true core of individuality, which passes from one incarnation to another, is certainly already connected with our physical being, and we should not think, therefore, that under normal circumstances our individuality could be exchanged after birth with any other. Prior to birth, the individuality is already connected with a particular body, human body. But the point at which this core of being, this human individuality, can start to work upon us, shaping and configuring us, is another matter. Once the child is born, the individual core of being is already present, as we saw. But prior to birth, this core being cannot as yet bring to fruition or unfold the effects of what it acquired as capacities in the previous life or in all previous lives. It has to wait until after birth. And so we can say that before birth, the causes of all inherited qualities and characteristics are actively working on us, the features we inherit from father, mother, and other ancestors. As stated, our core being is present already in all this, but it cannot engage in the whole active complex until the child has actually been born. Then, once the child has first seen the light of day, this individual core of his being begins to reconfigure the organism. Naturally, I am speaking of ordinary circumstances. There are also exceptional instances where things are different. The core being transforms the brain and the other organs so that they can become its tools. 
This is why a child at birth bears more of the characteristics he received he receives through inheritance, while his individual qualities gradually work their way into the organism's general nature. If we wish to speak of the individual's work on the organism before birth, this would belong in a quite different domain. For example, we could in fact say that the individuality is already at work in choosing the parents, but this too is really a work undertaken from without. All work before birth can be seen as undertaken from without by our individual core of being, mediated, for example, by the mother, and so on. But the direct work of this core being on the organism does not begin until the child has been born. And this is also why the intrinsically human quality, our individual nature, can only gradually come to expression after birth. The child, therefore, initially has certain characteristics in common with animals, qualities specifically, which find their expression in what we wish to talk about today in connection with laughing and weeping. In the first period after birth, the child cannot really laugh and cry. He will usually start to cry around 40 days after birth and then also learn to smile. This is because what has survived from former lives now starts to be active and from then on first sinks down into the body's interior and from there makes corporeal nature into its means of expression. It is precisely this that raises us above animals. For we cannot say that an individual soul passes on from one animal incarnation to the next. The animal is sustained by the group soul. And we cannot say that an animal's individual nature reincarnates again. Instead, it returns to the group soul and becomes something that only lives on in this animal group soul. It is only in the human being that what is developed in one incarnation is then passed on into a new incarnation after the transition through Devakan. In this new incarnation, it gradually transforms the organism so that the latter is no longer merely an expression of the characteristics of its physical forefathers, but instead comes to express, express individual dispositions, talents, and so on. Laughing and weeping are evoked specifically by the activity of the I, capital, within the organism of a being constituted as we are. Only a being bearing its I within it, whose I is therefore not a group I, as in the animal, but instead dwells within the organism, can laugh or cry. Laughing and crying are in fact nothing other than a subtle intimate expression of I-hood within corporeality. What actually happens when a person cries? Crying can only happen if the I feels weak in some respect in relation to what surrounds it in the outer world. When the I does not inhabit the organism and is thus not individual, a sense of feeling weak in relation to the environment cannot arise. As the possessor of an I entity, we experience a certain discord or disharmony in our relationship with our surroundings. And this sense of disharmony comes to expression in our attempt to defend ourselves, as though recreating balance. How do we recreate balance? This happens when our I causes the astral body to contract 
We can put it like this. In the sadness expressed in crying, the eye senses a certain disharmony with the outer world and seeks to compensate for this, to redress the balance, by inwardly contracting the astral body, as it were compressing its forces. This is the spiritual process that underlies weeping. Let's take weeping as an expression of sadness or grief. In each individual instance, we would have to study the particular nature and cause of this grief. It can, for example, express a sense of being bereft, of losing something we were previously united with. The harmonious relationship of our I to the outer world would exist if what we have lost were still present. Disharmony arises when we have lost something and the eye feels forlorn. Now the eye contracts the powers of its astral body, as it were, compressing it, in order to defend itself against the sense of abandonment. This is the expression of a grief that leads to weeping. The eye, the fourth aspect of our being, contracts and compresses the powers of the third aspect, the astral body. What is laughter? It arises from the opposite process. The eye allows the astral body to go slack, in a sense, to let its powers broaden and expand. Whereas contraction invokes the weeping state, slackening and expanding of the astral body leads to laughter as spiritual observation discovers. Whenever someone weeps, clairvoyant awareness ascertains a contraction, a compression of the astral body by the eye. Whenever someone laughs, on the other hand, the eye causes the astral body to expand, broaden, and become more filled and rounded. Crying and laughing can only arise by virtue of an eye active within us rather than working as a group I from without. Since the I is not yet really active at birth, but gradually starts becoming so, and initially has not yet, as it were, taken up the reins that govern the organism from within, the child cannot cry or laugh at first. He only learns to do so as the I becomes master of the inner reins that are first active in the astral body. And since, in turn, everything spiritual in us finds its expression in our corporeality, the latter being only the physiognomy of the spirit, concentrated spirit, these qualities that have now been described express themselves in bodily processes. And by making the following clear, we learn to understand these bodily processes spiritually. The animal has a group soul, which we can also call a group I. And this group I endows it with its distinctive form. Why does the animal have such a specific, inwardly enclosed form? Because this is impressed upon it from the astral world, and because it must then largely preserve this form. Our human form, as we have often remarked, encompasses all other animal forms in an harmonious totality. But this whole harmonious human form, our physical corporeality, has to be more inwardly mobile than animal corporeality. It must not be as rigid in form as the animal body. We can already see this in our mobile physiognomy. 
Just observe the relatively immobile physiognomy of the animal, its rigidity. And then look at the mobile human form with its changes of gesture, facial expression and so forth. Within the bounds assigned to us, you will see that we have a certain mobility, that we retain the capacity to some degree to determine our own form through the eye indwelling us. It is not self-evident, other than perhaps in a metaphorical way, to speak of the individual expression of intelligence in the features of a dog or a parrot as being comparable to that of human beings. General intelligence, yes, but not individualized, since in the dog, parrot, lion or elephant general characteristics predominate. Our individual character is inscribed in our faces, and we can observe how the particular individual soul inscribes itself in human physiognomy, especially in the aspects of it that are mobile. We have retained this mobility through our capacity to endow ourselves with form from within. That we can shape and form ourselves in this way raises us above the other kingdoms of nature. The moment our eye alters the general relationship of forces in our astral body, this also comes to bodily expression in our physiognomy. Our usual facial expression, the normal muscle tone prevailing throughout the day, has to change when the eye effects a change in the forces of the astral body. When the eye lets the astral body go slack, instead of maintaining the usual tone or tension, expands it, the latter will in turn work less strongly on the ether body and physical body, and this results in certain muscles, which maintain certain positions in the normal interplay of forces, adopting a different position. Therefore, if the eye renders the astral body looser, slacker, in a certain expression of soul, particular muscles have to adopt a different tension from the one which usually prevails. Thus laughter is nothing other than the physical expression, the expression in our physiognomy, of this slackening of the astral body caused by the eye itself. From within, through the eye's influence, the astral body brings about the muscle positions that give us our ordinary expression. If this tone or tension is released by the astral body, the muscles relax and expand and laughter comes to expression. Laughter is a direct expression of the eye's interaction on the astral body. When the astral body is compressed by the eye under the influence of grief, this compassion follows on into the physical body, leading to a secretion of tears, which in a sense are like the draining of blood under the influence of the compressed astral body. That is how these processes work. And this is why laughter and weeping can only be expressed by a being capable of incorporating the individual eye and through it acting from within. The individualized eye is therefore initiated where a being is capable of either tensing or relaxing the powers of the astral body from within. Whenever we meet someone who smiles at us or weeps before us, we see living evidence of the human being's higher stature compared with that of the animal. You see, the eye works from without 
upon the animal's astral body. And for this reason, all conditions of tension in the animal astral body can also only be caused from without. The animal cannot impress its inner life upon its outward form in the way we find this expressed in laughter and weeping. There is a good deal more to discover about laughter and weeping, however, if we observe the breathing process in someone who laughs or cries. Here we can really fathom the depths of what is at work. Observe the breathing of a crying person, and you will find it consists largely of a long out-breath and short in-breath. The reverse is true of laughing, where a short out-breath corresponds to a long in-breath. The breathing process is therefore something which changes in us under the influence of the processes we have just described. You need only use a little imagination to see why this must be so, why this might be so. In the process of crying, the astral body is contracted and compressed by the eye, and this leads to an expressing of the breath in a long out-breath. In laughter, the astral body goes looser or slacker, and this is like pumping the air out of an enclosed space, thinning and dispersing it, whereupon air will be drawn in. This causes the long in-breath when someone is laughing. In these changes in the breathing process, we can see the eye's activity within the astral body. The group eye external to the animal is something we can rediscover in its interaction in ourselves in this remarkable expression affecting the breathing process and causing changes to it. Let us therefore examine for a moment the universal significance of this process. In the animal we find a breathing process that is, you can say, governed and regulated from without and is not subject to the sway of the inner individual eye, as we have described this today. What sustains the breathing process, governs it, in fact, was named Nefesh in the esoteric lore of the Old Testament. Readers aside, Nefesh is here spelled N-E-P-H-E-S-H, Nefesh, or Nefesh, end of readers aside. In reality, this is a term that designates the animal soul, in quotes. In other words, Nefesh is the group eye of animals. And in the Bible it is stated quite correctly that, quote, the Lord God breathed into his, man's, nostrils, the Nefesh, the animal soul, and man became a living soul, close quote. People frequently misunderstand this, of course, since they are unable to read such profound texts in our time. They read them in a narrow, one-sided way. For instance, when the Bible states that God breathed the nefesh of an, or animal soul into man, this does not mean that God created this soul at that moment, for it already existed. The text does not say the nefesh did not yet exist. It existed, outwardly. And what God did was to transpose into the inner nature of the human being something that had previously existed externally as the group soul. The key thing is for us to fathom the depths of such a phrase. Then we can ask what the consequence was of the transposition of the nefesh into the inner nature of the human being. This gave the human being his ascendancy over animals, making it possible for him to unfold the inner activity of his eye, 
to laugh and cry and thereby to experience joy and pain in a way that enables these to work upon him. And here we come to the important effect of pain and joy in our lives. If we had no eye within us, we could not inwardly experience pain and joy. Instead, they would pass us by without reality. But since we have an eye in us and can work upon our astral body and thus our whole corporeality from within outward, pain and joy become powers that act upon us. The pain and joy we experience in one incarnation is something we integrate and incorporate and carry over into a subsequent incarnation. It works creatively upon us. We can therefore say that pain and joy became creative powers of the universe at the moment we learned to cry and laugh. That is, at the moment our eye was transposed into our inner nature. So here we have the ordinary daily phenomenon of weeping and laughing. But we fail to understand it if we do not know how this relates to the core spiritual aspect of our being, what occurs there between the eye and the astral body when we weep or laugh. But what shapes and forms us is engaged in continuous development. The fact that we can laugh or weep in a general way is due to the capacity of our eye to work upon our astral body. That is certainly correct. But on the other hand, the human being's physical body and also ether body were in fact already predisposed to allow the eye to work upon them within him when he entered upon his first earthly incarnation. The human being had the capacity for this. If one were to squeeze an individual eye into a horse, this eye would feel most ill at ease there, since it would be unable to act at all or find any expression for its individual eye nature. Imagine an individual eye in a horse. The individual eye would try to work on the horse's astral body, contracting or expanding it and so forth. But when an astral body is connected with a physical body and an ether body, the physical and ether body present a a terrible obstruction if they cannot adapt to the forms of the astral body. It's like knocking your head against a brick wall. The eye within the horse's being would try to compress the astral body, but its physical and ether bodies would not oblige. And in consequence, the horse would go mad because of the refusal of the ether and physical body to respond. The human being had to be predisposed for such activity from the outset. This could only happen by endowing him from the beginning with a physical body, with the real capacity to be an instrument for an eye, one that the eye could gradually come to master. In consequence, the following can also happen. The physical body and the ether body can be inwardly mobile, real eye-bearers, as it were. But the eye can remain very undeveloped, not yet exerting the right mastery over physical body and ether body. We can see this in the fact that physical body and ether body behave as a covering for the eye without as yet being a full expression of it. This is the case with people who laugh or weep involuntarily, who bleat at every opportunity and do not have the laughter, resorious muscles, 
under their control. Such people show their higher human nature within their physical and etheric bodies, yet, at the same time, reveal that they have not so far brought their humanity under the control of the eye. That's why bleating laughter can seem so unpleasant. It shows that a person is at a higher stage in something he can't help than in something he can already do something about. Let me read that again. It shows that a person is at a higher stage in something he can't help than in something he can already do something about. It always makes an especially dire impression when a being does not show himself equal to the sublimity given him from without. Thus laughter and weeping are, in some respects, certainly an expression of human egohood. And this is already clear from the fact that they can only arise through the I indwelling the human being. Crying can be the expression of the most dire egoism, for all too frequently it is a kind of inner reveling. Someone who feels bereft contracts his astral body with his eye, seeking to make himself inwardly strong because he feels outwardly weak. And he feels this inner strength through being able to do something, that is, produce tears. And a certain sense of satisfaction is always connected with producing tears, whether we acknowledge this or not. Just as a kind of satisfaction is evoked in other circumstances when someone smashes a chair to pieces, so there is often nothing other than inner reveling involved in this generating of tears, a reveling in the mask of tears, even if we are not aware of this. That laughter is in some way an expression of the I, of egohood, can become clear from the fact that if you really trace its origin, laughter must always be ascribed to a person feeling superior to his surroundings and what is happening there. Why do people laugh? It is always when they feel superior to what they observe. You can always discover the truth of this. Whether you laugh at yourself or someone else, basically your I feels superior to something. And in this sense of superiority, the I expands the powers of its astral body, becomes broader, puffs itself up. This is what really underlies laughter. This is why laughing can be so good for you. And we should not condemn in an abstract way all egoity, all puffing up of oneself. Laughter can be very healthy when it strengthens our sense of ourselves in a justified way, leading us beyond ourselves. If you see something in your surroundings, in yourself and others, that is complete nonsense, your laughter elevates you above the nonsense going on there. It must sometimes happen that we rise above something in our surroundings and the eye expresses this by expanding the astral body. If you relate the breathing process to the saying that God breathed the nefesh into the human being so that he became a living soul, you will also sense the connection here with laughing and weeping, for you know that the breathing process itself alters when we weep or laugh. We have thus shown how the most mundane occurrences can really only be understood when we approach them from a spiritual perspective. We can only understand the real nature of weeping and laughter through insight into the connection between the four levels 
excuse me, the four aspects or levels of the human being. Just consider that in times when clairvoyant traditions still existed to some degree, along with a capacity to visualize the gods through true imaginative perception, the gods were depicted as blithe and jocund beings whose chief attribute really was jocularity and laughter. Nor was it for nothing that weeping and the gnashing of teeth were assigned to realms of universal existence in which an excessive egohood primarily held sway. Why? Because laughter signifies a raising of oneself, a leading of the I beyond its surroundings, and thus the victory of what is higher over what is lower. Whereas weeping signifies cowering, withdrawing from the external, a sense of the ego growing smaller and feeling bereft, a retreat into oneself. In human life, grief is poignant and stirring because we know that it will and must be overcome. But in the world in which sadness and grief can no longer be overcome, they do not appear poignant but hopeless. There they appear as the expression of damnation, of being cast out into the darkness. When we consider the larger context of how the work of the I upon itself informs and is expressed in the human being, this can give rise to powerful feelings in which we must pay close attention and which must pursue, we must pursue into their intimate configurations. We will then have grasped a good deal of what we encounter through the ages of evolution. We need an awareness of a spiritual world behind the physical, and of the fact that what arises in human life as the fluctuating phenomena of laughter and weeping appears separately from us as the bright blitheness of the heavens on the one side, excuse me, on the one hand, and the dark bitter grief of hell on the other. These two realms underlie our middle or mediating world, and we must see how this world draws its powers from both these other realms. There are a good many other aspects of human nature which we will study, but this theme of laughing and crying is, I would say, one of the most intimate things we can learn about the human being, even though they are such ordinary everyday occurrences. The animal does not laugh or weep because it does not have within it the divine spark that we bear in our eye. When a child begins to smile and cry, those able to read the great script of nature will see in this a sign of the divine nature indwelling the human being. When someone laughs, a god acts within him, seeking to raise him above all that is lower, for smiling and laughter is elevation. And when someone weeps, this is, on the other hand, a divine warning that this I might lose itself if it does not strengthen itself against all weakening and sense of being bereft. The God within us admonishes the soul in laughter and weeping. This is why someone who understands life will be overcome by something like deep annoyance when he sees someone crying unnecessarily. Unnecessary weeping shows that instead of living and feeling in sympathy with our surroundings, there is too much voluptuous enjoyment of inhabiting one's own eye. But the same insightful person will likewise experience an acerbic feeling when he witnesses an otherwise healthy elevation of the eye 
over its surroundings in laughter as an end in itself, as generalized laughter and smirking disparagement. For then, this person says, if the eye does not take with it everything it can draw out of its surroundings, if it does not wish to live in responsive engagement with these surroundings, but instead just unjustifiably elevates it over them, this eye-nature will not have the necessary gravity, upward gravity, that can be found only by drawing from the environment everything that can be drawn from it to nurture the development of the eye. And then the eye will fall back, will be unable to raise itself. It is precisely the right balance between pain and joy that can contribute so hugely to human development. If pain and joy in our surroundings are justified, do not lie only within us, and if between pain and joy the eye continually seeks to establish the right relationship to its surroundings, then pain and joy can become proper developmental factors for us. This is why great poets frequently find such beautiful words for the pain and joy that are not rooted in either the eye's sense of superiority or its inward compression, but whose cause lies in the externally disrupted balance of the relationship between the eye and its surroundings, as the only way of understanding why someone may laugh or cry. We can understand this because we see how the relationship between I and external world is disrupted in and by the external world. So we must laugh or cry, whereas if the cause lies only within someone, we cannot understand what makes him laugh or cry, since then it is always unjustified egoism. That is why we find it so beautiful when Homer says of Andromache, who suffers from a double anxiety for both her husband and her infant, she wept laughingly. That is a wonderful phrase for something we can see as normal in weeping. She does not laugh or cry for her own sake. She has the right relationship to her surroundings when troubled both for her husband on the one hand and her child on the other. And here, as they hold the balance with each other, we have the right relationship between laughter and tears, weeping smilingly, laughing through tears. This is also often expressed, excuse me, this is also often something expressed by the young child, whose eye is not yet so inwardly hardened as later in the adult, so that he can still laugh as he weeps and weep as he laughs. And we find it again in a wise person, someone who has overcome himself sufficiently to look beyond himself to discover why he laughs and weeps, discovering this in the world around him. Again, such a person can weep laughingly and laugh weepingly. Yes, indeed. And what we often fail to notice in ordinary daily life, the spirit comes to full expression. Laughing and weeping are something we can, in the most lofty sense, see as a divine physiognomy within us. The end of Lecture 17